Hello, Tisha. Hi, Jen. So this is our second episode back in season three. I now know what season it is. Unlike yes. the last time, I think it was last week that we recorded and I said it was season four, <laughs> but it's season three. It is season three and we are kicking off this season with a special month, which we are calling motherhood, the good, the bad, the ugly, because, you know, motherhood is all encompassing and, and it's there's a lot of ugly yeah and and relationships with mothers can be very complex agreed yes. jen oh yes <laughs> oh they can they can i feel like yeah 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 and one thing i want to say well i have a few things to say but number one happy mother's day to all the mothers who listen Yes. And, and we think there's a lot of you. Yes, we do. <laughs> and if you are a listener that Mother's Day is was complicated and is complicated mm -hmm. for you, I resonate with that. Yeah. And I hope the day was okay. I hope yeah. you had a little bit of peace. I hope you found a little bit of peace and a little bit of joy in whatever you did on that day. Mm -hmm. In the whole complicatedness of like motherhood and the relationships, today's episode has got it. But we can talk about that in a minute. What have you been up to, Tisha? We haven't been talking much lately. Oh, except that we just talked for an hour, but yeah, cool. Um <laughs> prior to this, prior to when we get on to record these. What have I been We up haven't to? been talking as much. We went to the cottage and we opened up. We've got water, so cottage season is in full swing, I guess and just like work and dance momming and yeah reading the book that we chose for our book club this month which i am really loving it's called five little indians by i haven't started it yet oh you should start it i know who is the author her name michelle is good? No. michelle good oh and that right? uh yeah yeah, so we're reading Five Little Indians by Michelle Good, and it's a great read so far. So, yeah. What have you been up to? My brother was here this weekend. Mm -hmm. My youngest brother. I am the oldest of four, and my youngest brother came up from Atlanta. He has a baby girl and a wife, and they stayed behind in Atlanta, and he came up, and the boys got their fill of gaming and boy time because he is an avid gamer. So there was lots of video gaming while I did things around the house and went to Home Depot and, you know, we did stuff all together, but it was primarily for the boys to get some uh, boy time. Mm -hmm. So we did that. You know what else I've been doing? What? Dreaming about our girls getaway yeah which is going to be about two days after this episode airs yes yes we are going to prince edward county for jen's birthday <laughs> so yeah yeah happy birthday to jen oh yay happy birthday to me <laughs> good old 45 which it's funny, one of the kids is like, whoa, that's old. And the other one's like, no, it's not. And I'm like. It's all relative, right? I mean, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm good with it. Yes, a girl's weekend away. I don't think any of us have really had that in a long time. Yeah. No. It's going to be so good. It's for my birthday, but it's really just for all of us to get away. It's for all of us. I think it's yeah. going to be really nice. Yeah, I'm excited. But for this week's episode, we are mm -hmm. talking with Ms. Nova Reeves. Reeves. Yes. Reeves? Reeves. Okay. And I actually was just working on it and was remembering, like, all of the amazing nuggets she had to share, like, after mm -hmm. she kind of got through her story. And, and I really... I really enjoyed this the conversation. Yeah, same here. And I think our listeners are going to really enjoy this one as well. And if they can't get enough of us, they should also join Patreon where we do have some additional episodes yeah, that, that you can listen to mm -hmm. there. Yeah. 
And then, of course, remember to come back every Wednesday and download our next episode. And another thing, you guys, if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, even if you don't, if you have an iPhone, leave us a review on Apple because- Oh, yeah. We'd love that. Do that. We Guys, do that. We really love that. (laughs) You don't even know what it means. It's amazing. And it like, I read all of them. And they're all good. I kind of – it would be interesting if somebody trolled us. I think I'd probably get a kick out of it. Um, don't, hey, hey, don't, hey. Don't, don't troll. go inviting trolls. I'm, I'm, <laughs> if a troll is listening right now, then I don't know what to say about that. Bring it. Yeah, bring it. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll press is good press. But, yeah, leave us a review if you are a regular listener of the show because those reviews help other people find our show, which is important to us. Um, and if you're interested in merch, like you need a cozy sweatshirt for the cottage this summer, now at pod.com, shop our merch. I'm waiting for mine. I know, I need to check in with the lady. And we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Jen and welcome back to Now What? Hi, I'm Tisha. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. We are here today with Nova Reeves, who is going to share some of her story with us. Nova is a poet and birth mother living in California, and she also works at Trader Joe's. And we will just, you know, we'll put a link in the show notes to where you can find some of her poetry. Hi, Nova. Thank you for joining us, Nova. We'd love to hear a little bit about you. So I grew up in the Seattle area and in the Seattle area in the 80s and 90s, there was a a serial killer who became very famous. Basically, he is the most quote unquote prolific serial killer in U.S. history that I, as far as I know, his name is the Green River Killer, and his, his actual name is Gary Ridgway. So I start off with this to just start off with the hard stuff. When I was between 15 and 16 years old, my mother disappeared, and she was found and identified, and her case became a cold case, which means it's unsolved, there's no leads, it remained unsolved until I was about 30. It's like 15 years. Yeah, it was about 12, 13 years. Okay. And she had been a stay-at-home mother. I was raised with her and my father. My father was uh, a building official of the town that we lived in outside of Seattle. So our mother was our primary caregiver, and she was severely mentally ill and untreated. And so one day, basically, she had some kind of life change or breakdown and decided to take off. And she started doing crack cocaine. And this was from having been a very, very health conscious, stay at home mom. We were raised on like tofu and brown rice and carob. And uh, there was no refined sugar allowed in our house and we didn't have alcohol and we didn't hardly have caffeine except for tea so she went from that to being on the streets and doing crack cocaine and this was in the height of the crack epidemic she started doing drugs and then my dad joined her when I was in uh, seventh grade in 1987 and then she disappeared in 1990 she was identified in September of 90, I believe. And then we were informed in January of 91. She was identified by dental records because her body had decomposed because that was the MO of the Green River Killer and why he remained at large. He would dump his victims in wooded areas and they were really hard to find. His first couple victims were dumped in the Green River. So hence his name. And he has 49 murders to his name. He's currently in the Walla Walla state. I think it's penitentiary. I'm not sure in Washington state in solitary until he dies. He was given a life sentence by King County 
in exchange for information. And that is how our mother's case was solved in, I believe in 2003, because once he was told he wouldn't be given the death sentence, he said, oh, you know, I do remember some more details. And our mother's name came to light in that process. Basically, the way he finally was caught is DNA testing advanced. As far as I understand, I'm not by any means very informed on this, but the police became able to give a suspect some gauze and they could chew on it and they could analyze the saliva for DNA. Basically, it was super hard having a mentally ill mother. It was super, super difficult. She was almost a shut-in. I don't know if she like officially could have been diagnosed with agoraphobia. Is Mm -hmm. that agoraphobia? Um, She would leave the house to go grocery shopping only with my dad and we would camp and hike sometimes. I do think she took us to the library once in a while or things like that, but she didn't drive and she didn't have any friends She never had a job outside of the house. She didn't like us having friends over in the house. The reason why I classify her mental illness as severe was that she had hallucinations sometimes. I just remember them when I was very young and then she had some kind of episode and I don't know how old I was where we had her journal. So she described it in her journals, which is why I know about it. But she felt that one day when she was baking cookies, she felt that she had opened the oven door and lost her vision and thought that Jesus was coming to her. And so she wasn't by any means hallucinating all the time, but she had lots of delusional thoughts. She said that vanity led to Satan. So if you looked in the mirror and you had this interaction or transaction with yourself uh, and body image and everything, but it was vanity, which led to sin, which was Satan. So the mirror was Satan. She thought that inhaling exhaust when you're out walking on the street would lead, lead to cancer. It turned out that later in my life, I saw that at gas stations, there's actually a warning that if you're inhaling fumes, that it could cause cancer. That's so far-fetched. <laughs> Doesn't sound far-fetched. Yeah. She was paranoid about that when you were maybe in busier areas. Yeah. Just walking on the street yeah. that would lead to cancer. I'm trying to think she just had all kinds of ideas about us as children. I'm the oldest of four and she thought one of us was, was like the devil. (laughs) And I I just chuckle because that it's not funny at all, but I'm just glad it wasn't me. And my understanding was that that sister reminded our mother of her mother. And my mother had a very fraught relationship with her mother. And that goes into many other details and stories, but my mother was a Hungarian immigrant who came here in the 60s when she was 12. And Mm -hmm. so she learned English by the sink or swim method in New York City. Mm -hmm. And then met my dad in college in North Carolina. So it's kind of interesting background. I think one thing for me that I had to process once I started kind of coming out of the really deep darkness that was processing her murder was I first, well, I guess I had to first start to understand the murder and accept it and, and her disappearance and her loss. And then I had to start working on what was almost more difficult, the acceptance that I felt that she hadn't loved me. And so those are separate issues that are so interconnected. I think Grief is complicated for everybody. And we just lost our father last June. And so I read an Elizabeth Kubler-Ross book um, on grief, not her main treatise, but a separate book that was written later. And, you know, grief is, is so complicated for everybody, but I personally feel that it is more complicated 
if you did not actually have a loving relationship with the person. My own personal story, my husband was killed at work a couple of years ago. So, and I have, I have kids, so we're very much bereaved and, and living with grief on a regular, but there is a sense, I think, even of what could be, you know what I mean? Like not having the chance to, and I would imagine you experienced that very much of just, you know, the, the loss of possibility of potentially repairing a relationship or what would it have evolved into or just in my own experience that's a big one that when I'm processing it just the possibility of what could be and and what our relationship would have grown into yeah it's not the same for me I became really jaded since she did start abandoning us when I was 13. So by the time I was 16 and 17 and had found out about her dying, I had just tried to divorce myself from her for obvious reasons, just to be a better adjusted person, because it's so difficult as a child to accept or to think that your parent didn't love you. It's a matter of survival in this world that we be loved and cared for by our parents. And it, it quite our whole identity and our survival and our sense of security in the world is tied into how our parents parent us. So my dad was pretty, I would say, had a lot of problems, but he was able to be loving. And that has probably saved us all in a way, although my sisters might disagree, because after her death, after our mom's death, he became very, a very different kind of parent. And so as a family, the grieving was so strange because we didn't talk about her very much. And at the same time of not talking about her, her case was in the media and continues to be in the media. It's got to be a really weird dichotomy where everyone else is talking about it except you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And my good fortune is to live out of state in California where every time over the last 30 years I've shared somebody, unless they're a true crime fan, they haven't heard him, which is kind of remarkable seeing as we're on the West Coast and he's such a big deal. However, there was a Netflix special that just came out in November about him and other serial killers, and he was prominently featured. I haven't watched it, but the production company that put it together had contacted me a couple of years ago about being part of it. And then I got this random letter that said, we just want to warn you, there's going to be this Netflix special. It's called Catching Killers or something. Mm -hmm. And so I don't have to face a constant media presence or at the time of media barrage, but I, I lived in the Seattle area until I was 26. So, you know, I guess I did deal with it in that manner and then just moved away from it. Whereas like my sisters, if they tell somebody, everybody knows, and they all grew up with this case, right? It's a huge, huge deal. Um, right. And everybody would, would know who that was. So there was a serial killer in, and he started out as a serial rapist in the area that I grew up with in. And like, everybody knows who that is. Everybody knows that case. Like there's nobody you're going to find in Toronto who doesn't know what I'm talking about right now. So that makes sense to me that if anybody ever said, oh, you know, my mother was a victim of the Scarborough rapist, we would all know what that what that was what that meant and there would be no escaping it like for your sisters everybody kind of knows who that is where like you said you are living in a different state so maybe it was less prominent in the media yeah sometimes when I tell people they'll go home and they'll google it and and read about it and stuff like that or I've heard that they do that. I assume some people go home and look it up and 
read about it further, but I was going to, to segue kind of into the grieving component. Yeah. And so like I did start to say that we just really didn't talk about her. I personally am somebody who just needs to talk about stuff all the time with everybody. And I, I always joke like, I, oh, I don't have a filter and I don't have good boundaries. I mean, if you're raised like kind of with abuse, like your boundaries are funky. So, but I basically started trying to unearth who my mother was after she died. I went through, I'm assuming, I can't re remember very accurately, but for X amount of years after she died it, I just feel like your whole consciousness or your body is underwater you're not able to be conscious completely of what you're feeling or what you're going through it's too much I do remember in college calling up a detective who was on the case and assigned to the case and unbelievably, there were only two detectives at that time on the case in the early 90s. Don't understand that. But yeah, I remember. So that's a little bit of evidence that I was facing things that I was trying to unravel things. I am a poet. And so I wrote about her when I was ready. I don't remember how early I started writing about her, but I do have a zine that I send out to anyone who's interested and it has poems about her in it. It's all composed of newspaper coverage of the murder interspersed with poems about her. And so, you know, first you're in this darkness and then you start to doubt, like I've been going to therapy for years and writing and I would do open mics in my 20s, but it wasn't until probably my late 30s, and I'm 47 now, that I read directly about her story at an open mic. And I read at this venue called The Lost Church in San Francisco. And it's actually an open mic about death. And so I read a piece that I had written about her. And from that, I got interviewed for the podcast. This is actually happening in uh, the spring of 2020. And then from there, people have been asking me for my zine. But yeah, I wrote a lot of poems about her. I haven't had any published. I feel like they're too autobiographical. I'd want them published, but you know, it, what it helped me to do is everyone always thinks like poetry is therapeutic, but it's more that you're creating a record. And my goal in finding out about her life was to make her somebody that I could accept and then potentially love. Because what I would tell people over the years is, They'd say, I'm so sorry you lost your mom. And I would say, well, it's less about having lost my mom and more about mourning the loss of love all throughout my childhood. That's heavy. Yeah. Yeah. That is what my conclusion is, is that I'm, I'm basically, it's 30 years out and I don't, I do think about her, of course, and there's some PTSD and stuff, but I don't, you know, think actively like, oh, I wasn't loved as a child. Right. You know, I have intimacy issues. I feel like that I've become aware of, you know, and it's been hard to let myself be loved. And I've been a very independent woman. And I think that is partly a function of the lack of nurturing. My memory of my childhood is being pushed physically away from my mother and her not wanting to be touched or even to hug us. But that could have been when I was middle of my childhood and in the, into my early teen years, because I'm sure as a child, a young child, like I saw her parenting actively, my younger sisters and breastfeeding and holding them and and doing all the necessary things. It's just that the nurturing wasn't 
joyful. I think she was very stressed out and she shouldn't have had kids, let alone four kids. Four kids is a lot. Four kids is a lot. And like the, the mental health was, it was undiagnosed. It was undiagnosed yeah. until some late period. I want to say at some point, I don't understand this, but I thought I, I have a sheet from a psychiatrist saying she had bipolar potential borderline personality disorder, which might not have even been a DSM-4 thing in the late 80s. I thought that was from 89. The timing doesn't really make sense. So all I know is that I believe like after she had abandoned us and it was just my dad and her on the streets, like he might've tried to get her to take some medication and it didn't work. So it was definitely undiagnosed. I have bipolar disorder. So part of my whole process in forgiving her and unraveling or unwrapping the grief is to understand my my own mental health issues and yeah when you mature as an adult and you go through years of therapy and you write and you tell other people and you do all these things it still might not get you into a better place but me having years and years of dealing with bipolar disorder and dealing with it very successfully kind of enlightened me in my darkest periods to be like, oh my goodness, what if I had kids and postpartum and years of not sleeping fully? And so I think that very much led me to make my decision as a woman to not mother. When I was 35, I had an accidental pregnancy and I decided to place my child for adoption. That qualifies me as a birth mother, which is a woman who places her child for adoption. There is obviously open adoption now. It's been going on since the 80s and it is different for every family. But in our adoption, I see my son every three months or so. And they did just move to a different part of the state. But up till now, we shared birthdays and holidays and soccer games and ukulele practice and all kinds of stuff. But what I find interesting is how patterns repeat in families. And my grandmother abandoned my mother because of revolution in Hungary. And then my mother abandoned us. And then in a way, placing my child for adoption is not abandonment, but a form that's deciding not to mother anymore. Was part of that decision, like, because you felt like you didn't have that nurturing, like, mother, did you feel like you wouldn't be able to then provide that? That's 100% exactly it. And I was concerned with having bipolar disorder. So those two components were absolutely most of the decision because I'm I imagine as a child witnessing your mother you know struggle with her mental health that you don't really probably understand what's going on right in a way that you know you were talking about getting to know her and writing the poetry and that stuff and then being in therapy and your own mental health struggles I have to imagine that maybe it brings a different perspective and maybe a different level of like understanding and compassion for what was actually going on with your mom. Well, yeah, I have about one breakdown a year and I am very, very regular with medication. I have a meditation practice. I do yoga. I exercise. I make sure I have I have tons of friends. I make sure I have stress management and it goes on and on. And yet, no matter what I do, I have a breakdown about once a year. I did go about four years without a breakdown until a couple of years ago. That was a long time and it was wonderful. But so I recognize that without the stress of children and marriage and all that brings, I just have breakdowns and 
they are debilitating. And in a breakdown, if it's very bad, I can't care for myself. I stay home so that I won't go spend all my money. I can't manage my money. I sometimes can't cook or be aware of time really. So whereas I normally juggle a really healthy, balanced life, I've been working full-time for a couple of years now. When that happens, it's all out the door and it's not because of any one thing that happens. So part of my journey has been to try to understand, you know, what caused my mother to act the way she did? And I just feel like, well, isn't my mental health so different than hers? No, I have education. I have resources and tools that she didn't choose to have slash couldn't have. If you're raising four kids, you don't have time for therapy. You don't have time for a lot of self-care. I don't know what it's like being a mother, but I imagine you can't necessarily like exercise on a schedule and it makes it a lot harder. That's for sure. Well, and I think especially at the time that you were a child, like nobody cared about self-care for moms. They barely do now, but like they really didn't then. A woman's job was to care for her children. And that's that. I'm a few years younger than you and the oldest of four. And I don't ever remember seeing, my mom permed her hair at home because she couldn't go to the salon. Like, I don't remember her ever taking care of herself. No, exactly. As a woman, as a mother, and I hope is is not offensive, I feel like your needs come last. And at the same time, I always think about how on an airplane, they say every single time, if you're an adult and you have a child with you, put your mask on first. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Because you are the bastion. You are the one who is providing all the care. And if you're not functioning, then how are the kids going to function? So I did have to parent. I started parenting when I was 13 in my fashion as I felt able to. I wasn't by any means like going to parent teacher meetings and no but you're the oldest so now if your mother's abandoned you and your father has gone the way with her you are you're the one that is expected to and feels probably like they have to step up yeah and I've been keeping a journal so I've I've always been a writer and I've been keeping a journal since I was 11 and I don't like to look into my journals from my childhood, but I have in the last few years. And I was shocked to see because I was 14. I was in ninth grade about a year before we were put in foster care. And every single entry says that I'm exhausted. And what I'm doing is I'm getting myself to school without a school bus, without a ride and doing chores after school, doing homework, bathing my baby sister, getting her to bed because we're 10 years apart and I was 14. Yeah. And then just saying, oh, I'm so exhausted in every entry. I'm so exhausted. Mm -hmm. Um, And when the social workers came to pick us up, I didn't know where my sisters were. My dad would take my youngest sister along with him ostensibly to drug deals And my two middle sisters just farmed themselves out to neighborhood moms. So they would always be gone after school somewhere. So we had to literally find them. And I just don't have a lot of memories from that process, but we did get placed in foster care altogether. And we all have very successful lives, I feel like. And two of my sisters out of three have chosen to parent. And I think they're incredible parents, which is just a testament to survival and thriving in the face of what we term to be challenges, which isn't quite the euphemism. And so, yeah, I, I feel that for myself, you know, my vocalizing everything about the case Um, about my mom. A few years ago, I I started hearing myself talk about being in foster care. 
everything starting with getting interviewed and going on the record with the Seattle Times about my mom's case has led me to the place I'm at now. And at the same time, like I said, I still struggle with issues of intimacy. I'm in a committed relationship that I wasn't for years. And I had really bad PTSD, really bad just a few months ago. And I'm guessing it's because from what I read about grieving, sometimes people will go through one death. They'll kind of put it away as as much as they're able to. And then a second death in their life occurs. And then all of a sudden that first death comes back. Mm -hmm. And so my dad had a really traumatic passing in June of last year of 2021. And at some point last year, between June and December, I was literally thinking about my mother and how she got killed. And you do not want to think about that, like ever. Like the actual details of the murder you found yourself thinking about. Yeah, visualizing it. So that's not probably a place you want to go. No, and that really felt like PTSD. I've only had one therapist diagnose me as having PTSD. And I think I was only experiencing it when I moved back to Seattle when I was 30. And as soon as I left the area, I was mostly fine. Yeah. There's probably a lot of stuff there that just was triggering, that was bringing up memories and seeing places and stuff I'm sure yeah I think it's honestly the weather (laughs) and the weather interesting Uh, well like you know I love my family and we're on really good terms but the proximity to my family has always been triggering and then the weather is just for me I get depression and anxiety I get more exacerbated symptoms so I moved to one of the sunniest places in the United States so. <laughs> yeah it was gotta do what works for you it's what works for me and it's really hard to be apart from my sisters now that they have small children and mm-hmm. just you know it's all about whatsapp video chat and the kids like running around like screaming it's like well I'm not really getting to know my nieces and nephews <laughs> via these video chats but it's what we have. Or so. you kind of are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you might actually yeah. be as much as they can. <laughs> yeah. I mean, kids on video chat, they're like grabbing the phone, they're running around with it. You see the ceiling, you see the floor. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it gets better as they get older. Yeah. My niece is a lot better now that she's almost eight. But the last time we chatted a few days ago, she was just letting out a a sustained scream and I'm like asking my sister like why is she screaming is there a reason she's like no she just likes to do that no (laughs) they just scream for no reason one thing I did want to really get across is that it was instrumental for my healing to realize that my mother's behavior towards me and my sisters is not my fault Yes. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a really hard thing as a human, but as a child, especially. And I'm sure it's in all kinds of books on trauma and family models, but I have stayed away from those for the most part, for whatever reason, to my detriment. But yeah, just realizing, especially as I became more familiar with managing mental illness, that there's just no way it could have been different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about your mom, like she immigrated here. You said she really didn't have any friends. I mean, she may not have had that like support system it, that you need. Like she didn't work outside of the home. So she wasn't really engaging with people in that way. She didn't have friends. I imagine as an immigrant, she didn't have all of her family here as well and then she's trying to parent and dealing with mental health that maybe she didn't even understand what was going on with her yeah that's exactly right we grew up well 
my parents were hippies and I'm Gen X, obviously. And so when I was a baby and I was the firstborn, they threw me in the back of a pickup truck and we just lived on campsites my first year or so. And they decided when they decided where to land, it was the furthest point literally in the United States from all of our family on my dad's side. So my dad is from South Carolina and they decided to settle in Washington state, literally so as far, far as you can go, yeah. so mm -hmm. far away. And on my mom's side, they are spread far and wide. My maternal grandfather had been in Sweden. He's passed away now. Our great auntie was in Sweden. Our grandmother, my, my mom's mom was in Toronto actually. And there was no other, there are no other siblings, no other relatives, no connections. And I, I do did find out that my mom made friends, of course, when she was in boarding school in high school, which with the Sisters of the Sacred Heart in Albany, New York. And so I, in the early 2000s about, I, before we could like do Facebook and all that, I tried to contact her classmates going off of a yearbook that I found. Oh, wow. And I got the most amazing results. I only heard from two people. Well, I heard from several people, but only two people became instrumental in helping me understand my mother. And one was her, one of her classmates who sent me my mother's letters. So my mother had written her letters post-graduation and um, she sent them to me, I think only three letters. And she sent the birth announcement for my birth, this little Snoopy oh, wow. birth announcement. Mm -hmm. And that was huge because of something that my mom wrote in one of the letters just changed my whole origin story. And the second person was my mom's art teacher who is, was a nun, is Mexican-American and ended up living in Southern Mexico, working with Mayan women. And we started a correspondence. We kept a correspondence for 10 years. In 2011, I was able to go to Chiapas, Mexico and meet this woman who was my mother's teacher in the seventies and talk to her about my mother. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Was she able to give you some insight into who your mother was kind of when she was younger before she had children? She totally was. She has this amazing memory. Absolutely amazing. She's in her 70s. And she remembers my mother like it was yesterday. And I mean, I don't even know how many students she's had in her yeah. lifetime. And she said that at this the, sac the Sacred Heart Academy, they were Catholic, but they were super liberal. So they had a nun on duty 24 seven, so that if you had trouble in the middle of the night, you could go and talk to somebody. So she remembers having long conversations with my mother, who was there as a full-time boarder. She wasn't being parented at all. She says, oh, your mother was very... European, very beautiful and classy and smart. And so just really good things that she remembered. And she didn't say, mm -hmm. well, you know, she was starving herself and throwing up and had weight, body issues. She didn't tell me any of that, which I, I did grow up watching my mom be anorexic and bulimic, uh, her, <laughs> her mental health and substance abuse issues. It was a really, really good thing. And it started a whole path where I have been going to that part of Mexico and volunteering for 10 years. So sporadically, I don't have 10 years of volunteer work under my belt, but yeah, travels. Yeah. Uh, so good. Yeah. That's amazing that she remembers because it's not necessarily easy to like remember every student you had, but your mom obviously had 
made some sort of an impact. Yeah. Made some sort of an impact on her that she could remember. And, and it's nice that she offered to share that with you. Yeah. And the only other person, so I have two people alive who knew my mother, which is my maternal grandmother and my great aunt. My maternal grandmother is a writer also and has written several memoirs and she's funny. I'll ask her questions and she'll just snap at me and say, it's in my book. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, but your books are in Hungarian. so (laughs) (laughs) You're my grandmother. So you should tell me. (laughs) And I don't speak Hungarian. And one of her books she did translate into English and then her other two were, oh my gosh, I don't remember if she has three or four books. I want to say she has three and only the first one was translated because they're all self-published. And my great aunt, on the other hand, really loved my mother. My mother was named after her. And every time we've been able to connect, she has sent me photos of my mother, which none of us had in our family, like of my mother's childhood and tells me memories of her and fills in some of the blanks. Mm -hmm. Um, But she lives in Stockholm and I've only seen her like three times in my life. So, mm-hmm. but it really sounds like you've kind of gone through this process of trying to piece together really who your mother was. Very much off of very scant evidence. Yeah. Um, and I do think that, I think you touched upon it earlier, but I do think that so much of our own identities are, are connected to who our parents are. And when that information is missing or cut short, then it kind of becomes important to figure out where we came from. It, it does yeah. so much. And I think the, the backstory in my mother's life and her mental illness was that she was born in 1953. I believe it's the year Stalin died. And in... 1956 Hungary was invaded by Russia and so my mother was only three when this revolution came about and her mother felt that she couldn't flee on foot with a three-year-old and so she left her behind and then my grandfather my mom's dad felt that he couldn't parent so he gave my mom to his parents. Those grandparents felt that they couldn't parent, so they gave her to the other set of grandparents. Those grandparents felt that they couldn't parent, so she ended up with a woman who took in kids and did people's laundry because yeah. other countries don't have organized foster care like the United States does. And so my great aunt describes coming to see my mother and my mom not being clothed from the waist down and being dirty and sitting in a courtyard at this laundry woman's house. And then when she was 12, my mother was sent for to the United States by my grandmother. And so my grandmother didn't parent. She'd never parented Mm -hmm. ever, ever, but she did have custody of my mom from birth to age three and then from 12 to age 18 but she was in a boarding school she put her in full-time boarding Mm -hmm. school and didn't really even visit her on the weekends that I know of my grandmother was a fashion designer in New York City and so that was for whatever reason she felt it was better she felt that my mother shouldn't be in the school system in New York City public schools and that this was a good simply a good opportunity for her and we can't you know my grandmother came from a rather aristocratic Hungarian family so you know she wanted education for my mother right Um, yeah but and so she provided that but you know definitely can see this sort of generational trauma as you're describing these stories and and this idea that maybe her mother provided some of those necessities and not a lot else. 
in terms of the nurturing and then your mother has children and is you know she said like you said she breastfed the kids and and cuddled them when they were little and then not a lot of the nurturing and I think it can be hard to know how to do that if you haven't had it and just the idea that at three she was passed off how many times that's yeah there's no version of that not having an impact and then how do you let people in and develop intimacy and learn how to be nurturing right and like you you were saying even about yourself that it can be hard to have those intimate relationships and um yeah on top of being passed off when she was three my grandmother before she was a writer was actually a cabaret singer like a jazz and a jazz singer Mm -hmm. and she was working singing at night and so it's like who was feeding the baby she describes having my mom in the bed and leaving her to go sing work right which is as we know a very bad thing for Mm -hmm. childhood development Mm -hmm. we spoke with one of our guests about developmental trauma and she definitely was in that age where that's what was happening and that doesn't go away (laughs) you know like it doesn't just go away without any work or support and I think especially in the time period we're talking about there wasn't even any acknowledgement that that was even a thing yeah, I want to thank I want to thank you so much for saying like how would my mother know how to parent? Yeah, because I just didn't it's just it's very helpful right now to talk about her life in in this way because it's it really is helping me understand her better. It's like, yeah. you know, my sisters can parent and they are parenting, but they were parented. I guess my youngest sister really only had a couple years of parenting before my mom was killed. And then my dad was, he was an addict and just not the best parent. He worked in a professional capacity until retirement, but he was a functional addict and alcoholic. Mm -hmm. so it's really it's like she's parenting how is she doing that I do think that there's an element of it that is innate but not for everyone I think too like obviously my story is going to be very different from your sister's but I also have a lot of child trauma and sometimes in my life where maybe I wasn't protected in the way that I should have been and I think becoming a parent some of that is really hard to grapple with. And there's a lot of conscious effort, if that makes sense. And a lot of healing, I think that I have had to do in order to be able to parent, because when you're parenting without having done any of that healing, I think that's when you're more likely to kind of repeat that stuff. And you get triggered. I was an Mm -hmm. elementary school teacher. I was an elementary school teacher about 10 years ago. And I just found it super triggering to be caring for very young children. Right. Yeah. And And your sisters might have their own struggles too, right? Like, like you said, they're doing and they're being successful parents, but that doesn't mean it's easy for them. Yeah, exactly. And I, I always have this theory that the less time my sister spent being parented by my mother, the better, that they're more likely to be healthy. My family theory is that my baby sister was only parented by our mother until I, I honestly don't have the numbers exactly correct, but let's say for about four years Mm -hmm. till she was about four. What I just wanted to say is regardless of how old you were and what the capacity was, is you did step into the best of your ability to fill that gap when you had to. Right. So you did. And that's not to say that you should be parenting or mothering now, but there is a a part of you that is able to do that because you did. 
Yeah. It doesn't mean that you should for life. It doesn't mean it's very different having like baby babies and like each stage is very different. But I think you contributed to them, your sisters, I would think, being able to as well, because you showed such innate caring as the older sister. Like we all are oldest sisters. And I know I feel an immense protectiveness over yeah. my siblings. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it continues. Yeah. Well, thank you so much that, yeah, I, it's weird. I just talked to my sister, not the baby sister, but the, she's my, our second out of, so I'm the firstborn, she's second born. And literally I talked to her right before this podcast and she said what you said. It's amazing the timing. She said, I never realized, and I'm just now realizing like how much parenting you did. You had to, Um, you didn't have a choice. So you probably don't acknowledge it as such, really. I just remember doing laundry and setting the table. I just remember doing chores. I don't, and I guess I bathed my little sister. So again, like chores, that's, that's less of a chore. That's more. That's a job. That's a full job. Um, <laughs> but, but the thing is, is to a kid, it's a chore, but if there's no adult who's going to do it, if say you don't, then it's not just a chore. It's part of running a home. Yeah. I, I know that I somehow fed them mm. because we obviously ate. I remember my parents dropping off bags of groceries and there being like a couple days in between. So they just kind of drop the food and then go off. Went off. Again. Our, our work yeah. is done. <laughs> we, yeah. we left groceries. Yeah. 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 Writing bad checks at the local grocery store. And this is like, my dad was the building official of our town. Like he worked with the mayor. Like he went from that to like running on the street and spending all his money and abandoning us. Mm-hmm. And so eventually a neighbor was like, oh, I'm going to report these parents. Right. Because the neighbor knew what was going on. Do you mind telling us your mother's name? Yeah. Her name was Marty Cullish Mm -hmm. um, and or Marta, but she went by Marty. Okay. She went by Marty. I think, you know, it's interesting and. I did listen to you talk on another podcast about this and, or you kind of touched upon it or made me think this, like, it's interesting, I guess, because your mom was a victim of a serial killer that there's so much focus on the killer and like, nobody's really paying attention to the victim and thinking about that. The, like, these were real people who had, lives and families and you know regardless of her struggles obviously didn't deserve to have her life end the way that it did and I think sometimes like we hear like oh there was a serial killer and you know she had four children people like those poor kids and then they never think about it again but you know and you're a real person who's having to now deal with the fallout from that and carrying that for the rest of your life. When I got interviewed by the Seattle Times, I said that when I was in my 20s, that is when they were talking about the case, I said something to the effect of poorer women don't have advocates for them when they're getting killed. Mm -hmm. You know, they disappear or they get killed in domestic violence situations or by murder then I felt that those cases were not going to be investigated and given attention. And usually mm-hmm. murders go, yeah, they go cold pretty quickly. And you only hear about advocacy if the family like literally drops everything. Like with Black Lives Matter, like the family drops everything to advocate for justice for their loved one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, or if there's somebody yeah. who's very well known, like there was the, the TikToker in the summer, Gabby Petito, this white woman who, because people knew who she was and because she was white, 
the whole nation was like trying to figure out like well I don't I only know from what I saw from other people talking about it but it, it was this big deal but it's because she was a public figure in in mm. some way yeah. so it, it's true and it I don't know that much has changed unfortunately yeah because I don't know and this just could be my ignorance but I don't know of a single memorial to the victims of the Green River Killer I and don't there know were so many so many and I don't know of any forum wherein the victims families have met each other or talked to each other or gone to the court case or it's just I I also as part of my healing did a press conference in 2012 in LA as part of an anti-death penalty campaign in California, which the death penalty still stands, but it, it's, it's been voted on and very narrowly kept on the books in California. But when I spoke with this organization, that is called something, it's MMVR, it's Murder Victims, families for reconciliation or something like that um, out of Texas, but I spoke with them and that was the only time where I kind of tiptoed into the world of other people who have family members who have been murdered and what is that like and talking about reconciliation because I never wanted or I never needed, not wanted, I never needed Gary Ridgeway to be put to death because I felt it's more suffering for him to live life in prison. And it doesn't bring back our mom. I just wanted to emphasize that it is really, really hard to acknowledge murder. It's um, one of those super uncomfortable things. It's just too big is my guess. And it's interesting that there hasn't been any, I mean, again, I wouldn't know because that's not my experience, but like what kind of groups and and supports are there for somebody who is a survivor of somebody who has been murdered? Because that is a very unique experience that as much as we do talk a lot about how you can find commonalities and through hard times and and there definitely are threads, but there are certain experiences and I, I do think yours is one of them, Nova, that it's, it's like there is value in being able to have access to and connect to people who are the survivors of people who have been murdered. There are organizations, I don't know how many, but I was living in Sacramento the time that the case was solved in South California. And there was an organization called Viva, like, again, I'm it's failing me, but victims advocacy something. And I only went to like one meeting, but I was really struck. What I remember was a, I don't want to talk about murder all the time, which is why I don't do anti-death penalty advocacy, but B, I saw a wall of photographs of people who had been murdered. And as a white woman, I had thought that perhaps they'd be majority people of color. And murder, unfortunately, reaches across all uh, Mm -hmm. races and gender and class. Mm -hmm. So that was a big realization for me and an equalizer. And I I did want to just, as kind of capping up, really emphasize to people that if you can in your life, in everything in your life, if you can connect and realize that you are not alone in your experience that is probably one of the most powerful things you can do to heal and i was able to do that not through therapy but through my meditation practice Mm -hmm. i came to realize like every time i met with my meditation group and we shared that i was just like everybody else and that is super profound because Mm -hmm. Grief is isolating, murder is isolating, family trauma is isolating, 
mental health is isolating. It's a lot to overcome, but if you can find your spirituality, your meditation practice, your form of healing could be art. It could be helping other people, which I think is probably one of the most powerful ways to heal. It could be like me, advocacy, writing, even just journaling, any kind of therapy that you can find that works for you or, you know, that will engender healing over time. It's Mm -hmm. inevitable. Mm -hmm. Thank you so, so much for that. Yes. Thank you. And thank you for, for agreeing to talk to us and making the time. Mm -hmm. This is a really, really interesting conversation. Thanks for listening to the Now What Pod. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone you think would love it. You can find us on social media at the Now What Pod. Until next time, we're Tisha and Jen. Remember, your story matters and you do too.